and welcome to the 58th episode of the podcast F4. We're calling it that since it's easier to say than food and frightening film fanatics. Before we get started, our usual disclaimer, heavy spoilers ahead, turn back now if you haven't seen these movies. Today we're talking about a franchise that I personally don't think gets as much uh, airtime or discussion as it deserves, and that is the Stepfather franchise. There are four movies total. The first one was The Stepfather from 1987, directed by Joseph Rubin, starring Terry O'Quinn, Jill Showalan, and Shelley Hack, written by Donald E. Westlake, from a story by Westlake, Karen Lefcourt, and Brian Garfield. It received an uncredited rewrite by David Lowry. The second movie is Stepfather 2, Make Room for Daddy, from 1989. So two years later, directed by Jeff Burr, starring Terry O'Quinn, Meg Foster, and Caroline Williams. Screenplay was written by Joseph Arbach. Then Stepfather 3, from 1992, so three years later. Directed and written by Guy Magger, starring Robert Reitman. Priscilla Barnes, and Susan Hubley. And then the last movie, again called The Stepfather from 2009, so 17 years later, and this is actually a remake of the 1987 movie. Directed by Nelson McCormick, starring Dylan Walsh. You'll probably remember him best from Nip Tuck. Amber Heard. She's been tons of things, including uh, Aquaman, all the Boys Love Mandy Lane, and Rum Diaries, where she met her future ex-husband, Johnny Depp, and Celia Ward, who's been in lots and lots of stuff, Sisters, Day After Tomorrow, The Fugitive, etc., and Penn Bagley, who is currently starring as a stalker in his own right on the Netflix series You, which is currently in Season 2. So that series is a lot of fun, too, so you might want to check that out. Where to find these movies? Amazon has all four movies, but only number three is free. The others are three to four dollars each. And everything but the remake is on Tubi for free. None of these movies are on Shudder, Netflix, or Hulu. Rotten Tomato scores. The Stepfather from 1987. Critics gave it an 88. Audiences gave it a 65, so that's pretty high. Stepfather 2. Critics gave it a rating of zero based on five reviews, and audiences gave it a 33%. Stepfather 3 was not rated by critics. Audiences gave it a 25%. And the Stepfather remake, critics gave it 11%. Audiences gave it a 34%. So obviously they did not like the remake. Uh, The plot. As usual, I will read what IMDb says first. So the Stepfather, the first movie, IMDb says... After murdering his entire family, a man marries a widow with a teenage daughter in another town and prepares to do it all over again. We eventually learn that Jerry Blake, or we don't know what his real name is, so I'm just calling him Jerry, is in search of the perfect family, and when they don't live up to his high standards because they're human, he kills them, alters his his appearance, moves to a new city, and starts all over again. Um, We also never learn how many families Jerry has killed, 
and we don't know the specifics of his childhood except that it was less than ideal. So when we first meet him, he is um, has his sight set on a widow named, uh, let's see, what's her name? I can't remember, but she's played by Shelley Hack. And you may remember her um, probably from Charlie's Angels. So she has a teenage daughter named Stephanie. And Jerry just ingratiates himself to them and moves right in there. But Stephanie continues to be suspicious of him. Um, and, of course, she's missing her father who had passed away as well. She speaks to a therapist. She gets in fights in school. And she gets expelled from school. Um... But as time passes, Jerry can only hold it together for so long until he starts having these uh, tantrums and, like, tearing stuff up and yelling and screaming and talking to himself. He, he has switched families so many times he forgets the family's name, and at some point he says to Shelly Hack, Who am I here? Which is pretty funny. Um, I do think that the movie was elevated greatly by the performance of Terry O'Quinn. He was really wonderful in this movie, and he really sells the character uh, with his quiet and calculating portrayal of Jerry. So that's the first stepfather. The second one, Stepfather 2, IMDb says, After escaping the insane asylum in which he was incarcerated, Jerry Blake, again played by Terry O'Quinn, impersonates a marriage counselor and manages to win over a patient, Meg Foster, and her young son, Jonathan Brandis. Uh, Meg Foster's been in tons and tons of movie and TV. You probably know her from They Live, Jeepers Creepers 3, uh, Xena, Hercules, lots of other stuff. She is also known for her stunning blue eyes. So the premise of Stepfather 2 is basically the same as 1. They're really, it's really the same plot in all of these movies. Um, but this time, of course, Jerry is pretending to be a marriage counselor named Dr. Jean Clifford, and he starts having group therapy sessions with all the local, um, wives in the neighborhood, and then sets his sights, of course, on Meg Foster. One of Meg's friends, uh, eventually finds out the truth about Jerry, but she stupidly tells him, and of course he kills her and makes it look like a suicide. So they're about to get married, and it's the wedding day, and everybody's getting dressed at the church, and Meg uh, figures out the truth, and Jerry tries to kill her, but luckily her son is nearby and is able to uh, slow him down long enough um, to keep him from killing her. And then they run out into the... Um, what's the word? Uh, out into the church and... Uh, people see them and call an ambulance. So that's Stepfather 2. Stepfather 3, IMDb says, That psycho stepfather has escaped from the insane asylum again, because he escaped, remember, in the second one too, and this time has his face surgically altered. Now he's married again, this time to a woman with a child in a wheelchair. He goes on a killing spree once again. Yes, it does say again all those times. So Jerry... In this movie is after Priscilla Barnes, who you may remember from Three's Company, and her teenage son, who is in a wheelchair, as we said, um, is heavy duty into true crime 
and does not trust Jerry at all. So I think points for the kid's persistence. Um, Jerry gets bored with his current family pretty quickly in this one and starts a new one down the street. And it becomes hard for him to juggle the two households. And when the two women eventually uh, start talking to each other, it's just a matter of time before they figure out what's up. So he invites uh, love interest number two to the nursery, and that's a nursery for plants, not for babies, where he works. And he plans to kill her before love interest number uh, one, which is Priscilla Barnes, um, finds out about it. But Priscilla shows up again. Uh, well, she shows up. Her son stays in the car. She goes in. She tries. She is able to successfully stop him from killing the other woman. Uh, but then he attacks her. Somehow the boy um, gets the wheelchair out of the back of the station wagon, goes into the nursery, and then stands up and miraculously walks. So go figure. Um, and ends up pushing Jerry down the wood chipper so that's that's quite a way to go and i don't think jerry's going to be coming back after that one now for stepfather uh the remake imdb says michael harding played by Penn bagley returns home from military school to find his mother susan played by Celia ward happily in love and living with her new boyfriend david played by dylan walsh as the two men get to know each other, he becomes more and more suspicious of the man who is always there with a helpful hand. So this movie opens with the same changing his appearance scene as the original, uh, but there's no blood on his face. So he showers, shaves, uh, puts in contact lenses, comes downstairs for some toast, and we eventually see that he has killed his entire family, which was a mother and three children at Christmas time. Um, this time he was going by Grady Evans. He ends up changing his name to David Harris and moves to Oregon. And the usual scenario unfolds. David's real father is in the picture in this one temporarily. And he gets a little nosy. He wants to reestablish a relationship with his son. And his son tells him that he doesn't trust Jerry. So he's trying to, to get some intel on him. And, of course, uh, Jerry ends up killing him by smothering him uh, with plastic bags. So that's a pretty rough way to go. And this is after Jerry has killed the next-door neighbor because I think she says she saw him on America's Worst Wanted. I can't remember, but he offs her, too. And he also offs the woman that he works for because she keeps trying to get him to fill out forms. And this person is also friends with um, his soon-to-be wife. And uh, he drowns her in the pool. So in the end, it's a knockdown, dragout fight that has, uh, lasts for a little while between Michael and Jerry. And of course, the mother is there and the girlfriend is there. They end up in the attic. They fall through the floor from the attic down to the floor. Then I think both of the guys end up on the roof and then they fall to the ground. And Michael ends up being in a coma for a month and then Jerry when they go back to look for him of course he's gone um, a la Michael Myers style so um, Michael wakes up in the hospital a month later and that's the end of the movie and of course that leaves the movie open to a sequel so on to trivia 
Um, let's just do some general trivia first. So Terry O'Quinn is most famous for playing the evil John Locke on Lost for six years, and he's been in tons of other movies, including Millennium, 666 Park Avenue, and most recently, Castle Rock. Two out of three of Jerry's wives were in Rob Zombie movies, which we discussed back in episode 14. Meg Foster was in 31 and The Lords of Salem, and Priscilla Barnes was in The Devil's Rejects. Interestingly, they were both also on Murder, She Wrote. Uh, I'm convinced that every actor in Hollywood between the six, 1960 and 1980 was on that show because uh, I've been watching all of those episodes again, and every time I turn around, there's somebody famous on it. The song, Jerry Whistles, in the movie, um, except for the last one, I don't think he whistles at all, is called Camp Town Races, and it's a minstrel song by Stephen Foster, and I have a clip of it here, so here is Camp Town Races. So it seems like Jerry is dead at the end of each movie, but somehow miraculously keeps coming back. So at the end of the first movie, he was on the, the landing of the stairs with a knife in his chest, and he looked like he's dead. But then at the beginning of the other movie, he ended up in a mental hospital, so go figure. Then at the end of the second movie, he has another big knife stuck in his chest, but of course he's still not dead. Um, after the third movie, of course, I don't think he's coming back because he ended up down a wood chipper. And as we already discussed at the end of the remake, he just disappears. Um, now, trivia about the individual movies. Obviously, most of them is about the first stepfather movie. So the intro to the first movie is one of the best in movie history, in my opinion. Um, and I already described the scene, but basically, Jerry calmly gets ready. He shaves, he showers, and then he heads downstairs but you know he has blood on his face at the beginning of the scene, so you know something has happened, but we really don't know the extent of it. He calmly puts uh, kids' toys in a toy box, shuts the lids, he walks down the steps, and then when he starts walking down the steps, you see that um, there's blood splatter everywhere, and then when he gets down to the bottom of the steps, you see that there are bodies laying everywhere. So I thought that was a great intro, the way they did that. And I think they also recreated it well in the remake. Um, and then after, after Jerry has changed his identity, he just calmly walks out the door, picks up the newspaper on the front step, and walks away into his new life. So I really do think that's a great opening scene. Um, the Stepfather movies were loosely based on the crimes of John List, and he was known as a family annihilator because he meticulously planned and killed five members of his family, so his wife, his mother, and three children, and then went into hiding for some 17 years. He was later caught when someone recognized him on America's Most Wanted, and he was living a quiet life. He had remarried and was a member of the church and was working as an accountant. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting story. So there are lots and lots of podcasts um, that, if you don't know the story, definitely check out some of those. Um, the psychology of the guy is very interesting. He says that he killed the family because they were going to be tempted by evil. Um, 
when actually it just seems like from what I've heard in these stories that they were just normal kids. Um, luckily, the wife's mother escaped the same fate. He was planning to kill her too um, because she got sick right before she made the trip to their house. So that was good for her. He was also had lost his job at the bank uh, however many months previously, but still pretended to go to work. So this kind of reminds me of uh, Casey Anthony, where she pretends to go someplace, but um, is not actually going any, anywhere to work. So definitely check out uh, the John List story. Uh, other trivia, screenwriter Donald E. Westlake based the character of Stephanie on his real-life teenage stepdaughter with whom he was having difficulty getting along. The actors who played Stephanie... Uh, Jill Sholin claimed she was so disturbed from fil filming the violent final scene that she had recurring nightmares for a week about being chased by Terry O'Quinn. She also did almost all of her stunts uh, in the movie, and this movie was shot in 40 days. The first draft of the screenplay featured flashbacks which help explain Jerry Blake's abused childhood uh, and how that turned him into a killer. I personally think they made the right decision in not including that, any of that information because it would have taken away the mystery of the character. Entertainment Weekly ranks this as his 22nd scariest movie of all time. And Stephanie in the movie is 16 years old, but Jill is actually 23 at the time. And uh, Shelly Hack is playing Jill's mother, is only 16 years older than her, and Terry O'Quinn is only 11 years older. Director Joseph Rubin originally wanted Jerry Blake to whistle the Barbara Streisand song The Way We Were, but the rights to the song proved to be too expensive, so he went with Camp Town Races that we just played a second ago. Um, the first movie is rated R, so there is some nudity, and we see, um, Terry O'Quinn step in the shower, uh, at the beginning of the movie, and we also see, uh, Jill do the same thing. That was a little icky, though, since she's supposed to be 16 in the movie, even though we know she's 23, so, uh, yeah. Uh, almost the entire cast of The Stepfather also appeared on The X-Files, so Terry Quinn, I'm not going to list all of them, but pretty much everybody was on The X-Files. Um, some had recurring roles like Don S. Williams and others uh, appeared once or several times in different roles. If Jill Sholin looks familiar, it's because she was also in the horror movie When a Stranger Calls Back, which was a remake. Uh, so When a Stranger Calls Back from 1993, she was also in a number of other TV and uh movies. She previously dated Keanu Reeves, and she was engaged to Brad Pitt at one point. Box office uh, for this movie was $2.4 million, and Terry O'Quinn was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Male Lead, a National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Actor, and a Saturn Award for Best Actor. Uh, there are only two on-screen deaths in this movie. I'm not accounting the original massacre because we didn't see him kill them. But the on-screen deaths were Stephanie's therapist and uh, Jerry's brother-in-law from his previous marriage. Stepfather 2 
Uh, several additional moments of gore were filmed after principal shooting on the movie had wrapped. That's because the Weinsteins, after a test screening of the movie, complained about the lack of blood and demanded reshoots. Jeff Burr refused, and another director was hired to do the reshoots, and in an interview, Burr commented, they cut a bit of the film out, and then they added some badly done blood effects, badly done because Terry Quinn refused to do it. Really, they were meaningless, so that was irritating. Stepfather 2 was shot in four months, and Terry O'Quinn ad-libbed most of his dialogue. Um... The makers of the movie originally had Kay Lenz and Susan Hubley in mind for the role of Carol. Hubley did, however, return to play Jennifer in Stepfather 3. Brian Austin Green was originally up for the role of Todd. And Jonathan Brandis, who got the role of Todd, was also in the original It and in the series Sequest DSV. Sadly, he committed suicide by hanging at the age of 27. So that's sad. Uh, box office on this movie was $1.5 million, And the on-screen deaths, I can't remember all of them, but we have the psychiatrist at the beginning when he's escaping from the mental hospital and the guard and then a poor guy who's trying to get in his car's Amtrak station. Um... And the priest, uh, and there's a couple other people, but uh, you get the idea. Um, nope, wrong. The priest is in three, so forget I said that. Stepfather three, Terry O'Quinn turned down the chance to reprise the role of Jerry Blake, resulting in the storyline being changed so that the character got plastic surgery to alter his appearance. Stepfather 3 was shot in 25 days, and in this movie, Keith Grant, played by Robert Whiteman, becomes a gardener at a plant nursery. John List, who the stepfather's based on, took up gardening as a hobby when he was on the land for 18 years. Um, also, like List in this movie, Keith Grant attends church where he meets Christine, played by Priscilla Barnes, and Andy, played by David Tom. Throughout his life, List was devoted Lutheran and taught Sunday school at every church he attended in his lifetime. And here's about the priest. So the cover-up of Father Brennan, played by Joseph Engel's murder, is the same as Dr. Bondurant in uh, the original Stepfather movie. In both, Jerry, or whatever name he's going by, uh, pulls the seatbelt across the victim, says buckle up for safety, sticks a rag in the gas tank, lights the rag, and pushes the car off a cliff as it explodes. The only difference between the two is how the victims initially die and the height of the cliff. For the opening scene in which Gene undergoes plastic surgery, Gene slash Jerry, director Guy Magar filmed an actual plastic surgery procedure with no special effects used during the scene. And this movie was shot over the course of 25 days in Los Angeles. Budget was $1.8 million. And on-screen deaths include the surgeon, after he did plastic surgery on Jerry, uh, Mark, who he buried in the garden, Mr. Thompson, who he raked to death, put in the wood chipper, and, as I said, Father Brenna, who had his face beaten on the steering wheel and then got shoved off a cliff. Uh, the Stepfather remake... 
Uh, Terry O'Quinn was offered a cameo on this movie, but he turned it down. And Dylan Walsh, Jessalyn Gilson, and director Nelson McCormick worked on the FX show Nip Tuck, which is where I first heard about or saw Dylan Walsh. And Gilsig also worked with McCormick on Prom Night from 2008. Um, let's see. The Stepfather. This one grossed $29.1 million in North America and $2.1 million in other territories. Worldwide gross of $31.2 million against a budget of $20 million. Uh, on-screen deaths in this movie include the next-door neighbor slash cat lady, Mrs. Cutter, Michael's father, who was suffocated with a plastic bag, so that one was actually a pretty rough scene, and um, Jerry's boss, Jackie, who he drowned in a pool. So why should you watch these movies? Um, well, the first movies, the first movies definitely become a cult classic, uh, because of Terry O'Quinn's performance. So I would definitely suggest that one. And then the other ones are really kind of like Lifetime movies. But I didn't think they were as horrible as the Rotten Tomatoes scores. So I kind of enjoyed all of them. I mean, if you take them for what they're worth. But obviously I enjoyed the Terry O'Quinn ones the most. So recipes. So you didn't have too much to work on here. But we have a recipe for O'Quinn's apple uh, crisp. And that is from, let's see, what's it called? Familycookbookproject.com. And it's by Hetty Wooten. And it's from Nanny's Recipes. And the ingredients are one half tablespoons of flour, two to three tablespoons of uh, old-fashioned oats, one tablespoon of butter, two heaping tablespoons brown sugar, sprinkle of cinnamon, and one apple. And then directions are blend first five ingredients until crumbly, uh, peel and slice an apple into the dish, spread crumb mixture over apple, place in microwave for three minutes on high. And that's it. So that's pretty straightforward. Uh, and then I went with this, of course, because of Terry O'Quinn. So I will put the link to uh, the website, familycookbookproject.com, in the notes. And that's really it for this week. Um, where you can find us, we are on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please give us a five-star rating if you like what you're hearing. We're also on Twitter at Food and Fright. Contact us by email at foodandfright at gmail.com. Or check out our website at foodandfrighteningfilmfanatics.podbean.com. So, seems like things are changing daily with the pandemic. Uh, many people are stuck in their homes or are working from home now. So, thank goodness we have lots of streaming services to watch and that there are plenty of good horror movies out there. Uh, but these days, uh, reality is a lot scarier than any horror movie. Um, so stay safe out there, um, try to practice social distancing and hand washing, and um, hopefully we will catch up with you next week. Take care until then. Bye-bye.